When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, assistant professor at St. Louis University, Dr. Tim Huffman. Hey, what you drink? Okay, guys, tonight, this is going to be a really extra special conversation because I pride myself at bringing in people who I know have done the work, who I know have the scars. And we just really talk about a lot of experiences. And every now and then, we will bring in someone who's actually studied leadership and has approached it from an academic perspective, and they can couple that into uh, the leadership conversation. I hope you've appreciated those conversations. Tonight, we're going to go full on really understanding the elements of what goes into being an effective leader, probably more from a communication standpoint, because this guy is a PhD in a number of different things, but he specializes in communication. And so with that, I want to bring in Dr. Timothy Huffman. Come on into the room, man. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Well, hey, man. Well, come on in. You know, we, we met at a gathering for a nonprofit organization that, you know, I've been on the, I was on the board for the St. Patrick Center for, I don't know, 1500 years. And finally they, they said, okay, Galen, you don't need to come anymore. You're, you're good. And so I stopped coming. And right after I stopped coming, they brought you in. And so it was kind of a board function and, you know, you go around, you meet everyone and try to have conversations, but I'm kind of an old fogey relative to the board. So, you know, I was trying to be engaging, but I, you guys are doing so much more than what we were doing when I was there. But when I had an opportunity to talk with you, I just really enjoyed the conversation. And I, you know, I, hey, look, I got this podcast. We talk about leadership. We talk about a number of things. Would you mind joining and unfortunately, you said, yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Here I am. I'm happy to talk about leadership and not leadership, which I think is 
equally important. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I, you know, I got a bunch of questions, but everyone knows that this conversation is just amusing until, until I ask, so what you drinking? I am drinking chai tea. It's a cold and gray day here in St. Louis. And um, I've skipped the whiskey and gone straight to the tea. Oh, my. Now, chai tea, is that something that you have warm or do you can you have it over ice? I mean, chai tea can be cool. You could get it like blended with ice cream or whatever. But yeah, it's a it's a warm drink uh, today. Gotcha. Okay. Well, hey, I put a lot of thought into the whiskeys that I bring and that I sip while on the show. And so I've got, my listeners know, I don't drink a lot of rye. I just, I haven't found a whole lot of ryes that hit my palate the right way until uh, I happened across this rye and a buddy of mine told me that it was the one that I needed to pick up. And so I grabbed Thomas Handy rye and fell in love with it. And I started going around saying, you know, hey, I got to stop saying that I don't like rye because I absolutely love this. I absolutely love this one. And then some other people said, well, Galen, Thomas Handy, rye, that's not a regular rye. So you still might not like rye just because you like this one. So I'm going to crack this. And you can see, but others can't. I've had this bottle for about seven years. So I'm nursing this bad boy. So very sparingly, I'm going to crack this open. Don't know that I've ever sampled this on the podcast. And um, yeah, so I'm going to jump into this because this is kind of a special conversation. And it was surprising to me when I tried this. And I think that this conversation is going to be as surprising as our conversation began at the St. Patrick's Center. So I promise I'll make it go a little awry. To doom. Exactly. Uh, so while I enjoy this Thomas Handy Rye, share a little bit about your background because you you're relatively new to the area. And so I always find it interesting the background that people bring to this region because this region tends to really admire people from here. And so when you come from outside, I, I, I laughingly say no one ever moves to St. Louis. People usually move back to St. Louis, but you moved to St. Louis. So tell a little bit about your background and uh, what brought you to this part of the country. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Long Beach, California, uh, so pretty different than the Midwest. And when I was 14, I moved to Titopolis, Illinois, which is a town of 1400 people in the middle of Illinois. And uh, I went to college at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and I met the person who would become my future wife there. But then I moved on. I lived in Arizona. I lived in California. I lived homelessly for about six months. And then I got my PhD at Arizona State University in human communication. And while I was there, I studied homelessness and the social um, components of it and how people organize in response to it. And then my first job uh, was at Loyola Marymount University um, in California. And then, yeah, back to St. Louis. And I'm here uh, in large part because of St. Louis University as a Jesuit institution. It's committed to justice, equity, service to people in poverty. 
you know, I study homelessness and how we communicate and organize in response to social justice issues. So it uh, seems like a perfect place to be. And uh, this is my seventh year here. And uh, I found St. Louis to be a beautiful place to operate in, to organize in, really, really interested, dedicated academics and professionals connected to all kinds of social issues. It's um, it's a really, in some ways, the best parts of the United States and the worst parts all rolled into one. Uh, and that makes activist life, you know, important, but doable. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, that is a, an incredibly interesting background. I don't know that I've ever, I think I'm pretty safe with saying no one else on my show has ever been able to describe a background as diverse as yours. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, your homelessness, the fact that you were homeless for a few months, that really strikes a chord with me because the St. Patrick Center is an organization that's dedicated to in ending homelessness in the state of Missouri. And when I first moved to Missouri, uh, I was really committed to trying to get involved in the community somehow. And several executives suggested that I get involved with the St. Patrick Center. And I went down to the center, I heard the story, and I was really, really taken aback by the commitment that they had to actually living the mission that they that they put forward. I used to jokingly say, hey, I've lived in a lot of places and I've belonged to a lot of churches. And every church I belonged to had a building fund, but their building was like in need of repair. <laughs> so they weren't committed to the mission, but the St. Patrick Center seemed to be. This is sound like a commercial for the St. Patrick Center anymore. But just really, really great organization. I don't know that anyone else on the board could experientially talk about being homeless. That's got to bring a level of authenticity to when you show up at meetings. I mean, yeah, but what I would say is that for me, it was the beginning, but it's not really the primary way I encounter the work. For me, my homelessness was largely intentional. Um, and I like to make the distinction between being impoverished and homeless. There are plenty of people who are in poverty, but don't have, who have homes. And some folks who are living without homes aren't currently impoverished, mm -hmm. right? So at the time I was living homelessly, I had a job. I had a car, I had health insurance, um, but you know, I was living on the streets as a way of trying to understand the world uh, and connect with both myself and, you know, also the issues that I wanted to know more about. And so, you know, I, I tend not to lead with that when I meet people. Uh, I tend not to lead with it, you know, in a job interview or whatever. Um, but it really helped me understand how I encountered some of the elements. And then it, it it sharpened the way that I ask questions of other people who are experiencing it in a way that is more destitute, you know, um, that it involves more oppression, more marginalization, more risk of early death, which is one of the most profound measures of poverty. So for me, like, I would always rather ask the better question than be the person who can speak from experience, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not my experience that the St. Patrick Center is organized around. It's the experience of other people's, um, you know, who in some ways are, are are so radically radically different than my own. So for me, like, it helps me ask good questions. You know, mostly questions uh, is is how I try to occupy that space because it's the experiences of other people that are the most important. I'll, I'll tell you, th this topic of questions was one of the topics that that you and I connected a little bit on. 
because uh, I was really taken by, as I've shared with you and as I've shared with my listeners, I've been taken by the work of Hal Gregerson, who is also a, a lecturer, a professor. I was able to study some of his work there for a little bit, but he's the author of the book, Questions Are the Answer. And his real, I don't know, the topic that I've learned from him that has haunted me since is that the only thing worse than coming up with the right answer, coming up with the wrong answer, is coming up with the right answer to the wrong question. And that questions are the answer. Answers change all the time, but a good question will always drive the discussion. That seems to be at the core of at least the conversation that you and I had. Uh, what has been your journey into understanding and appreciating questions? All right. So you cited some folks, so I'm going to cite some folks. Uh -oh. so one, of my, one, of my, one of my favorite philosophical traditions is uh, called pragmatism. It's an American philosophical tradition. Uh, Dewey James, Richard Rorty, um, Cornel West falls into uh, this category, um, Charles Sanders Pierce. Anyway, one of the, the pragmatic maxim is the way that you can tell the difference between two claims of knowledge is whether or not those two claims lead the person who holds them to different actions. Does that make sense? So yes. if you believe one thing about how gravity works, and I believe another thing about how gravity works, but we both behave the exact same way with respect to gravity, how different are our ideas, really? They might sound different, but if they lead to the same practical outcomes, they're practically the same. Um, so that, that's kind of piece one. Piece two is um, when we think about how we come to know things, it's very accurate to say that we know what the people around us let us get away knowing. Hmm. So if I tell you I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a different job and you say, Tim, wh why are you getting a different job? And I say, well, Galen, God and I had a conversation and God told me that I should change jobs. Now, am I warranted in that assertion? Should I change my job? Well, I can think of some communities where that's a completely reasonable, warranted answer. And I can think of other communities where I would never even think to say that because they would want to hear something like a little more businessy, right? Um, and all of us know this because all of us have multiple communities that have different knowledge stakes, right? That have different rules for what counts as warranted. Right. Okay. So if you take both of these ideas together, the purpose of knowing anything is so that we can act and that we know together, right? That it is, it is by being with other people that we come to know. Then if you take those together, then you have to ask, what do we need to know together in order to act together? Mm -hmm. Right. And almost all complex problems in society are complex because there are multiple communities who have different standards of warrant. And so if you can ask the right question that can cut through two or three accounts of what counts as true and come up with something that mobilizes action, you could change shit. So the government needs to know one thing in order to, to you know, allocate its federal funding. The community needs to know another thing to say, we feel comfortable with this program being in our neighborhood. The people who participate in a particular program need to know another thing in order to trust people before they walk in the front door of that thing that's supposed to help them. The people who work there need to understand how the program is going to work. Donors need to understand some things, but maybe not so much that it's overwhelming about how their money is going to get spent. And you could run around asking a bunch of questions and trying to please everyone all of the time. 
But my goal is to ask the right smallest set of questions mm. that please the most number of people so that the right thing can come to pass. Wow. I love this conversation and I love your approach to this conversation. Uh, you know, there, there is a, a report that I read many years ago. I don't even remember the name of the report. I can't even remember five things from the report. One thing that stuck out to me was that you know, my background is in sales. So this was, this was more sales client driven, the research was. But the point was that customers value salespeople that can cause them to think differently about their situation. And that thing has, that has stuck with me for, I don't know, decades now, because it occurs to me that the point of questions is to cause people to think differently about the situation about whatever it is that they're trying to do together. The thing that I love about what you just introduced is it really does highlight the social nature of knowledge that it's so tempting for me to say, you know, if, if, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it, does it make a sound, which is very, very quaint. Yeah, but, but, but is there a community <laughs> that knows about that tree? Who's in relationship with that tree, who walks by that tree, who does rituals at the feet of that tree, who paints that tree, you know, into their murals when they think about God. I mean, like, yeah. And I think that we, if we have a broad understanding of community, community is both the human and the non-human environment, right? You know, it's, it's how we relate to each other and how we relate to the world. So if by having a transformative conversation with a salesperson, which creates a new relationship between me and the salesperson, shifts my relationship to this object that's connected to the item being sold, then yeah, I'm more likely to buy it, right? Because it's, it's, shape, it's creating a new path for me to move in the world right? Our knowledge isn't about the world. It's in the world. It's like, oh. it's like our fingernails. Ho, it's ho, like, wait, 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 back up. You guys say that you guys say our that knowledge isn't about the world. It's in the world. Oh my, that's going to do something. It's not how we hold onto the world. The world's bigger than we are. We can never grasp it, but we can't touch it. We can sense it. You know, it's more intimate than, than a holding, right? We do not apprehend the world. If anything, the world apprehends us. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to have the grace to recognize that we're not the authors of our reality and be, be willing to bend, you know, and that's why the world teaches us hard lessons. And that's why we hold each other accountable to hard lessons too. Right. Oh, so now you're, you're reminding of my conversation with, uh, Michelle Navarez, where I, I talked uh, a little bit about Shakaru, who was not the author of this, but he was the first person I heard say this. He he said, if nothing has meaning until I assign meaning to it, why in the world would I give anything a negative meaning? Because I'm control, I am in control of what that means to me. It might not be the absolute truth, yeah, but it's it's the meaning that I assign to it. And that just seems to be in line with what with what you just with what you just shared. Yeah, I mean, the darker read, though, is we grapple with the meaning-making legacies of the past. And so that it is true that we make meaning for ourselves, but we make meaning with, of ourselves inside of a structure of meaning-making that we've mm. inherited. Um, and the fancy word we might say is like imbricated, right? It's like layered, like adobe tiles, right? Mm. And you could pull one out, right? But that's going to be a lot of work, right? You're affected by the meaning-making efforts of others. 
Um, and a lot of what I think about when I think about communication is like, okay, like what are we receiving from history, right? Like what has brought us to this moment and how can I be in conversation with that enough so that those stakeholders can be carried along? But how can I project my imagination radically enough into the future so that I'm not determined by that meaning making either? Wow. That, that, that's great. And I, I love the fact that we are now starting to think about this in terms of the leader, because a big part, uh, I believe a large part of how, of what makes someone a leader is how they communicate. And I, I'm not necessarily just talking about the words that they use or the books that they reference or the, that kind of things, but there are a lot of things that go into communication. And, you know, one of the things that I know that you've got some insight into is, and I'm going to try to use your words here, embodied aboutness. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Talk a little bit about embodied aboutness. All right. Yeah. So um, that comes from uh, a research study that I did in nonprofit organizations that serve homeless young adults. Um, so if you're going to put your empathy, you know, hat on for a second, think about how hard it is to be told by society that you're not good enough. It's a thing that all people without homes experience, right? You know, like their efforts to find money to buy whatever they need that day are met with, you know, appeals, you know, that there's some kind of bum or ignored or pretended like they don't exist. That's all really hard. And I imagine that's hard for anyone, but imagine how hard that is for a 17 year old or a 20 year old, right? Like it's a really, really hard time, you know, um, in someone's life, you know, to be rejected, you know, kind of socially isolated in that way. So I work with a nonprofit organization, set of nonprofit organizations that work with people under the age of 25 who are homeless. And the project was really trying to understand what communicated care. How did they know that a nonprofit organization cared about them um, and what constituted compassion? And so the project was just listening to, um, I interviewed 26 youth. I did maybe a thousand hours of field work and uh, wrote field notes about it and really kind of like did this kind of sociological analysis of care in this field. And what I discovered was they read our bodies when they were in these organizations. They would look at postures, the nonverbal interaction, the eye contact, the direction a person's face was pointed, and they, they would assign that meaning. Um, and I, I think that they identify something that is potentially true for many different spaces and many different groups, um, that if, if someone is doing an intake and they're staring at the computer for 95% of the time and took looking at you 5% of the time, people might start to assume that what's on the computer is more important than me. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, I write about is just how important immediacy. So quickly responding to things, going out and finding people. If you know that they're there as opposed to waiting for them to walk in the front door, you know, showing some initiative uh, with respect to the care, the actual physical act of service. So cooking for cleaning for, but also being willing to turn one's body toward. And particularly if you think in the context of homelessness of how many times we deprive people in poverty of like the basis dignity of eye contact, right? You know, like here they are saying, no, this person's willing to share their face with mine, right? You know, uh, to turn to turn toward me. Wow. In, in some ways, uh, those are such small things, but they have the tendency to carry significant meaning. 
And also, small things that you might have the privilege of taking for granted, but when you're in the social class that doesn't take them for granted, suddenly they become visible. Exactly. I love it. I love it. You know, as I normally do, I'm, I'm starting to see the connections to leadership, right? So many times uh, I can envision uh, being in a room with my manager trying to convey a problem, a challenge that I want their help with, and they're on their phone. Or, you know, I'm listening, right? I'm, I'm looking at the computer screen. I'm listening. Go ahead. Go ahead. I got you. And um, that's sending messages to me, maybe not as significant as the people, but still sending that message. And if it becomes a habit, then it does send, create this theme that uh, what's on that screen is more important than this problem that I'm bringing to you. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just about effectiveness in, in, in leadership or in communication. It's also about ethics. So we'll cite somebody else. The Jewish philosopher Levinas argues that being vulnerable to the face of the other causes instantaneously in us this stirring responsibility, the admission that that, that is a person there and they ought to be treated in a way incumbent upon their dignity. And that every other ethical system that's ever been created is just sort of like window dressing to the fact that if there is a face there, if there is a person there, that requires basically an infinite amount of instantaneous concern and care. And, and this, this poses a problem, a, a paradox even for organizational ethics, because organizations don't have a face. You can't respond to an organization because it doesn't have a face and it doesn't have a face to respond to us, right? And so as denizens of organizations, right, it's, it's we who lurk inside these structures, it, it becomes incumbent upon us to have a face and to respond to the face in front of us. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.